I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming on um, what is such a beautiful afternoon. So I really do, um, I really do appreciate it. Wilding. The very name has gained resonance in our era of cybernetic liquid modernity. Wilding and rewilding have entered the public arena as hopes, ambitions, possibilities. These new gerunds have, given, have arisen to convey the need to reconnect with the palpable world, to rekindle in ourselves sparks of energy from nature, from that ambiguous, elusive place that holds our dreams. This festival reawakens our memories of an activist, a woman, Emily Wilding Davison, who many of the journalists and commentators on her death a hundred years ago have, compla- have complained has been forgotten. But she is less forgotten than actually misunderstood, as I'll try and show. As we are being spurred to rewild our ways of being in the world by writers about place, bodies, understanding, and survival, the suffragette who died of injuries she suffered after she was trampled by King George V's colt, Anma, in the Derby at Epsom in 1913, also conducts us by nominal coincidence towards this topical ideal to rewild ourselves. But there are wider and deeper vibrations between remembering Emily Wilding Davison now and refreshing our communal and personal energies. And they provoke many questions, which I shall only be able to put, not answer. In this talk, I'm not perhaps going to please you or please you all, an audience gathered to commemorate Emily Wilding Davison, though I hope some of you share my confusion. Her story and her character are not so much the source of my misgivings. She was ingenious and very courageous. She had a spirit of adventure and was gallant and singular and often brilliant. But I want to cry out against the necessity to hallow a cause by blood sacrifice. There must be another way of consecrating an ideal rather than this. Can there be? Martyrdom seems as old as Homo sapiens, but is it impossible that the species might evolve and that Mulia sapiens could come up with something different? Venerated scholars like Walter Burkett in his study Homo necans, Man the Harmer of 1983, Man the Killer, have argued with fervor that the sacred can only be instituted by bloodshed, by sacrifice. The practice is said to be hardwired in the human mind, in the imaginary, and central to social bonding. To sacrifice is to make sacred, and to die in plain sight remains the founding act of many revolutions. Two and a half years ago, Mohammed Boazizi, who sold vegetables from a stall in the small town of Sid Bouzid in Tunisia, poured paint thinner over himself 
and set himself alight outside the town hall in despair at the economic conditions that he and his family and his compatriots were struggling with. He died of his wounds in January 2011. His pyre instantly lit protests in the region and then in the country and then across the Arab world. The Arab Spring, which is still unfolding, confusingly, winterly, across the Middle East with consequences for the whole world. At the farthest polar distance from the street vendor in a small town in North Africa stands the right-wing extremist Dominique Venner, who shot himself in Notre Dame in Paris, in Paris about a week ago. It was in protest, he wrote in his suicide note, at immigration and the disappearance of French values, as he saw it. Martyrdom is a modern weapon, a deliberate, sought-after act which becomes an event. A public death makes a demand at the highest pitch of intensity and gravity. In the form of suicide bombers, it has become a literal weapon, as I don't have to tell you, deployed with horrifying frequency. And these are some figures which I, the only sort of really reliable figures from a reliable source that I could find, and they only go from 2003 to 2006 um, in Iraq, so it's a very restricted view, but there were more than 440 suicide attacks in that period. So the, pit, the toll now must be measurably higher. Yet I remember a time not so long ago when hijackers could be counted on not to want to blow themselves up and the plane with them. In the long story of religion and the state, the sacramental offering of martyrdom, as in the threatened death of Isaac and the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, and the deaths of the prophet's nephew and his grandsons, ritually enacted in festivals in Iran and Saudi Arabia, all these deaths throw a very long shadow, and it has not lifted, but perhaps grown even thicker. Secular movements have extended the force of sacrificial martyrdom, if anything, rather than lessened it. In a much quoted argument put forward in two intense studies about the contemporary formations of the state, George Gagamben fingers the marginal outsider who is persecuted, isolated, legally abolished, his word is exempt, as the principle that defines the state power. In 1995, in Homo Sovereign Power and Bare Life, he argues that the supreme power of the state is crystallized by depriving a certain person or set of persons, a certain element or set of elements, of their existence, of their rights. It's an intense and subtle book, very difficult to grasp, and I may have understood it, but it has given me an insight into the function of modern martyrdom from the point of view of the martyr and of the public that he or she is reaching by the act of self-destruction. Oh. Well, I thought, the, it was, I thought it was the race track. Yes, no, sorry. While the suicide dies, perhaps killing others, but not always, she takes herself from the invisible mar margins to the center stage and changes the status of authority. As Jacqueline Rose pointed out in an article on suicide bombers in the London Review of Books, the horror would appear to be associated with the fact that the attacker also dies. Dropping cluster bombs from the air, and we could now say drones, she wrote this article before the drones, is not only less repugnant, it is somehow deemed by Western leaders at least to be morally superior. Why dying with your victim should be seen as a greater sin than saving yourself is unclear. She went on with the sentence that gave the article its title, suicide bombing is an act of passionate identification. You take the enemy with you in a deadly embrace. 
I'm not sure about the phrase passionate identification. I think the reason that suicide is always a gesture as well as an act that pushes through beyond the limits of symbol into the raw act of death itself is that it still provides the ultimate accusation of authority. It puts the center off center. But it also, by a horrible paradox, asserts the liberty of the individual. That is, it asserts that all you have left, the power to kill yourself, all that you have left is the power to kill yourself. In Guantanamo, over half the prisoners are on a hunger strike, and they are being force-fed, as the suffragettes were. Their own self-imposed privations assert that there is still a place for them to have sovereignty over their bodies, over their existence, an irreducible right reduced to negation, but still in action. I'm tangling up a lot of different strands here, so let's try for some distinctions. The first distinction to be made is this. Emily Wilding Davison did not announce her act of suicide beforehand. In the ranks of heroes and heroines created by bloodshed are those who kill themselves by intention, and they are not the same as those who are intentionally killed, executed by judicial or official state procedures. Joan of Arc did not want to die. She struggled against the sentence. She recanted for fear of the fire, she said, after she was condemned to burn at the stake. When her judges offered her permanent imprisonment as her reprieve, she chose the stake, but only then. She's not, however, declared a martyr in the ranks of Catholic saints because it was the church that killed her. But these are only two of the potential permutations and differences. There are also accidental martyrs who are identified and selected for fame after their deaths. And then there are survivors. those who escaped an attempt to destroy them. They can be the most eloquent witnesses of all who can raise their voice afterwards to confront the forces who wanted their death. Malala Yousafzai is this kind of heroine. And I know you all know who she is, but she's the young girl from Swat in Pakistan who's campaigning, still campaigning against Taliban policies on female independence and education and was shot when she blogged that she wanted to go to school and went on blogging, that she wanted to, even after she and her family were intimidated, and has continued after the attempt to kill her, or at least to disfigure her. Emily Wilding Davidson, and from now on I shall call her Emily, is a pioneer because a hundred years ago she staged her final action at an occasion she knew would be thronged, and with a co contemporary flair for the media, she chose the most popular and prominent event of the racing year, when the latest newsreel cameras would be rolling. This is the um, newsreel. Uh, there were three cameras at the racetrack, and this is just the last shot, the last shots. You have to watch pretty carefully to see it happen there, it happened there. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost invisible, but, um, but we'll come to a bit more to it later. Um, the camera, especially the movie camera, has taken up the role of the interpreter and narrator the roles of the martyrologies are no longer on papyrus or parchment or marble, 
but on celluloid and now in electromagnetic, visual and acoustic bites. At the Derby of 1913, and the Derby of 1913 is a historic event in this modern mutation of heroic sacrifice, because the cameras captured the slender figure of a woman slipping under the barrier onto the track and then falling under the horse and lying prone on the ground with the horse tumbled too and the jockey thrown as well. At the time, this was a much more unusual experience than death in plain sight is for viewers today. It was happening in real time under their eyes. The film was not censored. Emily died four days later of her injuries. I've not looked at the evidence about responses to the footage at the time in between the race and the funeral procession organized to commemorate Emily Wilding Davidson's death, which came, as you know, to this church in Bloomsbury, which is why we're here. It would take careful historical research to assess what the balance was between outrage that the derby had been disrupted, exasperation at the wild behavior of the suffragettes, resigned realization that the campaign for the vote for, the vote for women must and would succeed, and awed admiration for the heroines who immolated themselves for the cause, or harmed themselves for the cause. All of these reactions and more were in tension at the time, only a month or so before the First World War broke out, when death would become a dreaded familiar experience, though not an experience in plain sight. The carnage in the trenches was carefully kept from becoming visible to the public at home. Audiovisual media, audiovisual media are actors in and catalysts of modern martyrdom, not passive witnesses. They've become an intrinsic part of the act. Martyr means witness and involves different stages. Suicide bombers testify to their intentions on camera in their videos beforehand, as you know, and the deaths they cause around them when they carry out their plan are, they hope, and their organizers or officers attempt to assure captured in some way and recorded and then disseminated to testify to the sacrifice and provide an example to others to follow them. These declarations of intent are couched in the language of religious sacrifice, invoking precursors in the pantheon. And this form is shared by the three Abrahamic religions. When I was at school in my Catholic convent, the word Holocaust, for example, was the literal term for a burnt offering. Um, sorry, um, a sacrifice such as the high priest performed in the temple on holy days. With a shift into symbolism, the near death of Isaac by the hand of his father Abraham would have been a holocaust. The animal that appeared to substitute for the boy on the altar became one. The scene prefigures, the scene of Abraham and but kill Isaac prefigures Jesus' death on the cross, which is invoked as a supreme holocaust in the Catholic liturgy. It was not used in English for the policies of the Third Reich until I was in my 20s. I can't give an etymological history of the usage, but the dominant meaning of Holocaust today possibly excludes applying it to anyone other than the victims of the death camps. The translation of the term in itself for the extermination of the Jews obscures some of the acute questions about martyrdom and sacrifice, which Emily Davison's life also raises. By revering and mourning such a death, do we want to hallow something so horrible? By making it praiseworthy, do we validate and honor crimes against others, as in the case of the Nazis' victims, and violence against oneself? While we pay homage to courage and selflessness, do we want to perpetuate martyrdom as the originary constitutive action for a better world? The circumstances of Emily's death, and I'm going to call her Emily from now on, are waiting for their historian. 
the neglect of her life has followed a certain continued confusion about whether she wanted to emulate, her, Im, em, emulate herself. This confusion might be strategic then and since then. She had a return ticket in her pocket and plans to go on holiday after Derby Day, so doubts have always hung around the motive, did she really want to die? Contemporary forensics have now made it possible to analyze the footage. And Claire Balding, some of you may have seen it, made a documentary for Channel 4, which went out last week, and gave the newsreel to experts to analyze. They slowed it down and disarticulated it frame by frame. And it seems likely that Emily was reaching up to the head of Anma, the king's horse, to attach a suffragette sash with votes for women, either around his neck or to the bridle, and that she chose her moment with remarkable bravery and precision, stepping out under the fence and onto the track, just as the colt and the jockey were reaching, around the, reaching towards the rear of the race were coming round the bend. Her approach was a kind of acrobatic, impossible feat. The animal at full gallop, it required a split-second timing and speed of reaction, not unlike the vault of bull dancers in Crete who seized the horns of the animal to leap over his back. It seems that Emily was acting on the principle that a citizen could petition the king directly, and if she had succeeded, the king's horse would have ridden the famous flat race at Epsom, wearing the colors of the Women's Social and Political Union, beside those of the jockey's royal livery. And the suffragettes would have achieved a brilliant detournement of the race with a symbolic blow which would have delivered a mass media triumph for the women's movement. The use of procession, performance, flags, costumes, souvenirs and colors was central to the campaign for the vote and presented a remarkable, coherent vision to the public and the media. The suffragettes were endlessly inventive and bold impresarios in the tradition of the French revolutionaries. Emily Pethick Lawrence, followed by Grace Rowe, were gifted at staging these pageants. The purple, green, and white takes its cue from the revolutionary red, white, and blue, and the WSPU and their militant elements, the suffragettes, followed the precedence of the, of the precedent of the radical enlightenment. The Jacobins, led by Jacques-Louis David, the painter, had adapted Catholic rituals quite openly into civic state pageantry. At the Fête de la Raison, the Feast of Reason, the Goddess of Reason was crowned in the Cathedral of Notre Dame, a profanity, a metamorphosis. This modern, rational Madonna formed the culmination of a strategy devised by the brilliant, cynical imagination of David and others to marshal and shape the revolutionary masses. Children who used to strew rose petals in the path of the Blessed Eucharist as it was carried through the village on the Feast of Corpus Domini now skipped and sang around the liberty trees set up on the village green. The model lingers in the vast parades of Soviet Russia and Northern Korea, North Korea, and also in more local processions and pageants, such as Virginia Woolf evokes in between the acts. Miss Latrobe, who stages a brief history of England, is possessed by a community sense and hunger for improvement that makes her a likely, likely kin to the suffragette revolution. And Danny Boyle, when he created the spectacular story of the nation for the opening of the Olympic Games, gave the world a glimpse, it was only a glimpse, of a suffragette march. On the telly, it was really to the side, but you could just see it. They came in with their banners. It wasn't picked up by the commentary, because something major was happening in the middle, but he did get them in, as he got the gyro marchers in too. Emily had ideas for political actions that prefigure act-up interventions and demos. 
She's a natural precursor of the Occupy movement and their stratagems of performative gestures and symbolic actions. But she was, in the words of the biographer of Christabel Pankhurst, an incorrigible freelance. Like most revolutionary campaigns, the women's suffrage movement was riven by internal struggles, leadership conflicts, and furious divisions over strategy. With a friend or two, Emily went it alone, mischievously, daringly. Two years before her death, she managed to steal into a broom cupboard in the House of Commons on the night of the census of 1911, and so was able to fill in the form declaring that she was in residence there, in representative house of, the, of Parliament, that night, the only inhabitant of the place and a woman. You'll have seen this probably more clearly in some of the documentation that's been published. Remarkably, the form exists and was tracked down by a historian in spite of various obstacles, because her name is actually misspelt on it, for example, in the, in the archive that, um, uh, that archived it. Her historic hideaway exploit was recalled by Tony Benn in 1999, and he, um, he hailed her as a heroic campaigner for liberty in this country and had a plaque um, raised to her inside the cupboard. <laughs> this is it, inside the House of Commons. This adventure, clever and significant and doubtless very uncomfortable, did not make a point of accepting severe suffering for the cause. In its verve and imaginativeness, it resembles the attempt to put the movement's favor on the royal cult. There is a profound analogy between these two gestures. She was positioning herself at an interstice in both actions in order to demarcate a new space for women as citizens. The broom cupboard in the House of Parliament and the King's Horse both offered this hitherto unidentified gap. Metonymically, they are both places, non-places, where non-citizens can insert themselves and turning both, turning both the site of their occupation and themselves, hitherto unregarded and invisible, into significant presences. At the level of symbolism, Emily's actions seem to me to exert a startlingly articulate power of definition. Women, a category of persons still invisible to political power, except insofar as that power wished to maintain her invisibility, refuses to continue in that state and identifies zones of indistinction, this is one of Agamben's phrases, that reflects her cancelled existence. She then makes these margins visible and their presence undeniable. But the approach to a horse at full gallop in one of the fastest flat races of all is not only a symbolic point in space-time. In, in the years between, Emily took her lead from the WSP slogan, WSPU's slogan, Deeds Not Words, demonstration took action, firebombing. She was sentenced for arson and other actions for the cause and became one of the most frequent victims, alongside the Pankhursts, of the Cat and Mouse Act. Emily was imprisoned for nine separate terms, went on hunger strike, and endured the horrors of force feeding no less than 49 times. She was desperate, she was an extremist, and she did herself harm, as the photograph of her has scored into her face. But she was a symbolist as well as a literalist, and when she fell under Amna, the horse, she was caught in the gulf that opens up between sign and act. Claire Boulding, uh, discussed the, in, the, in the documentary she made, discussed the possibility that a group of activists practiced running at a horse, probably not at full gallop, but at a horse running, and then drew lots before the race to see who would make the attempt on the day. They knew it would put one of them in danger, and perhaps they glimpsed how much danger. According to this scenario, Emily won the short straw. 
But as things turned out, she was selected for actual martyrdom. Until her centenary this year, her death was routinely reported as suicide. In all the books I looked at, about the Pankhursts, for example, I've got biographies of them, the account simply says she threw herself under the king's horse um, at the races, and she then gets rather short shrift as a kind of maverick. This misprision was not corrected by the movement itself, but the impression that she had died for the cause, made the supreme sacrifice, was allowed to linger. It was valuable propaganda. Emily's own passion for the cause had inspired her to contemplate death. She wrote about the glory of surrendering one's life for the spirit of liberty was a supreme gesture. And her gesture was directed at the fate of the monarchy as well as that of the government. The movement also adored Joan of Arc. The medieval virgin warrior embodied the heroism of dying for a belief. She also epitomizes the distinction, as I said before, between seeking death and being killed, a distinction that can become blurred and damagingly blurred. Few inquired after Emily. The press worried about the horse first. If you look at the um, list of headlines there, the order of the headlines, first about the horse, then about the jockey. Both were unhurt, surprisingly, but the jockey was haunted, it seems, by the death. He killed himself in 1951, though I haven't found out how this connects or how connected it was to the event so many decades before. Some of the documentaries say that you know, he was constantly haunted by the death of, of um, Emily Wilding Davison. Um, when Emily died, her intentions and rationale were swallowed up in the larger drama of the movement. The funeral procession wound through London till it reached this church, where a service remembering her was held. Looking at the photographs reveals the impressive, solemn ceremony. Huge crowds lining the streets and watching from the windows of shops and houses as the coffin passed by on an open horse-drawn hearse attended by members of the WSPU, all in white, some with garlands, all wearing the sashes of the movement and carrying banners with potent slogans, give me liberty or give me death. A handful of men were also in attendance, walking mostly behind the first carriages following the hearse, but on the whole, it was an assembly of women, reminiscent in their dress of classical virgin goddesses, guardians of the virtues on the one hand, and queens of the May from the depths of merry England on the other. They were speaking gesturally, symbolically, in a language forged of centuries of conveying virtue through allegory and personification, crowned with flowers in their hats, waving banners and pennants. It was conscious, deliberate, an enactment in the spirit of the French radicals, rather than in the tradition of mysterious folk rituals up and down the country. There were some disturbances, and historians have generally sidelined the event until this new um, rekindling of her memories, of her memory, saying that the claim that Emily's heroine, saying the claim about em Emily's heroism was not altogether well received at the time. But the suffragettes, in their last great procession, placed their first fatality, and she was to remain the only direct fatality of the movement, in the center of a modern ritual, a work of spectacular and dramatic self-portraiture. The whole issue of the suffragette was dedicated to the day. I'll just give, that's, that's the whole, that whole, which was, previously she had not been much noticed by the suffragette and actually rather disapproved of. But then when she died, they gave her the whole, whole issue. 
Um, and the picture created by the pageants uh, throughout the period turned, the his turned to history for heroines, and the chief of these was Joan of Arc. She was not yet canonized. That would happen only in 1925, but she was the object of ardent identification. The First World War started a few months later, and thousands volunteered to die for their, uh, sorry, a, a year later, and thousands volunteered to die for their country. The death of Emily Wilding Davison appeared to tip the balance in favor of women's suffrage afterwards, which was given to householders. Or, as some historians argue, it was the war, not the campaign, that gained women the right to vote. Women, sorry, Mrs. Pankhurst, sorry, the Pankhursts called off the campaign for the vote um, and gave, in, from some quarters, controversial support for the war. Joan of Arc, as I said, was declared a saint and the first church in the world dedicated to her name is here in London, in Highbury. Uh, she couldn't, it sounds paradoxical, but she couldn't be to have a church dedicated to her until she was canonized. So something had shifted in the climate about women and power. So here you see the image of Joan of Arc, a suffragette image being used for the war effort. And this, this particular kind of shift of consciousness, um, I think, led to the led to the, um, um, to, the, to the change and the acceptance and the gradual rise of women um, into a public life, uh, official public life. So this, I'll just show you one or two images of the, and this is as it was, a Carmelite convent, and they were just rebuilding the church, and they decided to dedicate it to her because she'd been made venerable at this point. And then in, um, I mean, sorry, it's 1920, not 1925, so um, th then it was changed to this interior, and it's now, it's still there, I mean, this is a photograph I took, it's not very good, <laughs> but, um, and um, it's, a, it's, it's now on certain Sundays of the year, it's the home of the Lingard, the community from French Congo, the Congolese Republic, and, um, and the mass is in Lingala, which is the language of that country and it was absolutely packed. And what was sort of brilliant about it is that Joan of Arc had been claimed in France for the right-wing movement of Fonds National. So they would not have liked to see that under her banner now, there is this very vibrant, um, lively, and rather marvelous kind of um, community with all the incredibly beautifully dressed with sort of huge turbans and the children all exquisitely turned out. Um, and so that was and then there's another church, also at the same period, um, which is um, St. Jude's in, um, in, um, in, um, in Hampstead Garden suburb. And that, after the war, this again is part of the climate of change and, and tolerance and welcoming about the idea of a female contribution to official life. And, um, and this returning soldier, who was an artist, painted, the, the church is entirely painted with figures from the Bible who are only women. There are no men represented um, in the Lady Chapel, and except a wounded soldier who's the only male figure. And in this Lady Chapel, the um, pantheon in the dome is presided over by Joan of Arc. You see her there at the bottom in the middle. I think I've got a close-up. And all around her are the great figures of Victorian public life. It's rather unfortunate that Walter Stone was not a better painter because actually this would be a, a, an amazing, it's an absolutely amazing cycle, historically and in terms of, of, the, of the choice and the selection and the 
desire to bring women forward. So there she is. In um, I gave this, I gave a lecture about the Liberation France, so it's quite something. And, and um, so there she is, in, um, presiding over that. Now, so we'll just, we'll just keep it there for a moment. Um, so Emily's supreme sacrifice, remembered by her sisters and fellow activists, inspired this momentous act of ritual mourning in public, dignified and awe-inspiring. But her, the power of her death does still raise in my mind questions concerning the importance of martyrdom for the success of a cause. Acts of voluntary sacrifice are strongly on the rise, and involuntary sacrifice happens far too often too. So I'll try and draw quickly some present instances um, in and some distinctions in relation to past heroism. Um, very recently, for example, we have um, the death, well, not so recently, but in 1980, Archbishop Romero was killed. I don't know if some of you remember an uh, extraordinary act of profanity in the church in San Salvador. He was one of the chief critics of the government and, of the, and he was just murdered in plain sight. But the interesting thing about it is that last month, the Pope, the new Pope, um, seeing that John Paul II was racing towards canonization, um, decided that he would reopen the cause for canonization of Archbishop Romero. This is actually quite a good stroke of, on his part. John Paul II closed down the, pro the process of canonization for Archbishop Romero, who was not sympathetic to the politics of this priest. But this is an example of how this appalling, this appalling kinds of sacrificial death um, not willed, not desired, uh, that take place now in front of the news cameras. So there's the inmates. Then the nuns were um, herded at gunpoint out of the cathedral. And then just recently, there's been another um, semi-political um, movement for canonization, and this is a priest who stood up to the mafia in Sicily, and he was beatified, as you see, uh, two weeks ago. So there's just examples of how these sort of, you know, the, the seal on a cause happens when someone dies. It's very, very hard to keep these causes alive in people's minds and actually move to another stage without, without these acts of martyrdom. So now we're going to do just a second. Um, I was going to tell you a little bit about being brought up to believe that the best thing to do would be to go into the arena with the wild beasts. <laughs> but um, I think I'll skip that because Badisha and I are going to have a conversation. So, um, but, the, but the part of the long cultural tradition of um, putting the tormented female body on show has now found lurid new expression, as I don't have to tell you. Pornography defines our era and has rightly become a central anxiety. And what is to be done about it confuses us. We don't know why women are reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Porn burrows into the freedoms that have been fought for so hard, for sexual pleasure, for choice, for equality, for freedom of expression, for the vote. Contemporary pornography is like a mimic insect which replicates another creature in order to deceive. You wanted freedom for women to have this or that or sex, well here you are, and so forth. Women's protest groups, like Pussy Riot, to some extent, and Femem, which started in the Ukraine and has spread rapidly since, performs a second twist on the mimicry and stages performances, naked, brazen profanity in action, in order to turn the poisonous dart on the aggressor. Just as the most brilliant species of mimic insects 
are camouflaged as venomous predators who are themselves in disguise as harmless. But they are, in their acting up to power, and their occupying sites of, authorities, of authority, the daughters of Emily Wilding Davison and of the other activist suffragettes. I'll just show you, um, you've probably seen them in these images. I think they're very, you know, they're very disturbing for many compl complicated reasons, and um, one needs to think and handle them with sensitivity. But there is something heroic about the um, putting their, vulnerable, their vulnerability so close to the actual um, agents of power. And the contrast, of course, they make these vivid, vivid press photography of where you see the actual suits confronted with the vulnerability of, these, of, the, of, the, of those who are, who are represent, representing the vulnerable. And I just wanted to end with um, three paintings by um, the Dutch painter Marcel Hanselaar, um, who I spoke to her about them. It struck me that she was very, very much confronting these difficulties of the, the, necess the necessary sacrifice, the need, the public media that feed on it, and but then institute the possible change by making it something that reaches it, reaches us collectively. And so this is this is actually an etching appetite, and it's a variation on the death of Abraham, the attempted death of Isaac that you saw earlier, the Rembrandt. So here is the there is a sort of transmuted figure of Abraham holding down the body on the altar. It, it's not as clear at this moment. So that's, that's a sacrifice, and she's, as you see, moved it into a nameless, but nevertheless fairly recognizable kind of refugee camp kind of place. And then this is the one that first caught my attention, because it's called Spectators and some nameless act of violence, you know, some vulnerable act of violence is taking place, and people are watching it and shaking a football rattle to, to praise it, and nameless soldiers, again, a kind of indistinct, anonymous, ravaged, war-torn place. So it's, it's kind of, I think, captures very, very well the collusion of us, the audience, with the act. That, and that bond that makes the act effective. Yeah. And then she continues the theme um, with this painting called Protesters. Um, and here, the sacred f female body in its glass coffin, um, restricted, in imprisoned, incapacitated, um, becomes the trophy that is carried by figures that who suggest violence, but also suggest, of course, being stripped of dignity. And I think they're, they're very enigmatic. She doesn't like to give them an exact analysis or account. They almost come to her hallucinatory dream, in a dreamlike way. They're on at the moment at King's Place, if you want to go and see them, just for one more week. Um, and, but I think that these, these in, in an emblematic way, not no narrative as such that's identifiable, and not, of course, as an argument. Marcel Hansela is responding to some of the issues that I tried to raise and that um, Agamben talks about, the, the, um, lacks, the, lack, the lack of freedom, the need to resist it, the use of female bodies, the historic use of female bodies, and what we are to do about it. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk.